I'm originally from Decatur. In fact, I went to Oak Grove. I went to Roosevelt Middle School, which is now Apartments, and I went to MacArthur High School, Go Generals. In junior high, the three words I would describe myself with are uh, dorky, dorky, and also dorky. Okay, favorite candy is anything that has the word Reese's on it. Literally, if it's Reese's, I'm a fan. Also, uh, Sour Patch Kids are fantastic. So, I know that I'm an adult, but I still like them. Uh, my favorite movie is Miss Congeniality. Just kidding, it's not. It's uh, Remember the Titans, uh, which is just a fantastic film. And then really think anything Marvel, so. Okay, my favorite childhood toy was Legos, um, but we didn't have like a bunch of fancy sets. So my parents bought me this thing called Constructs, which nobody's ever heard of, which were amazing. And also I had this little game that was like a basketball court that had um, little flippers you pulled and it shot ping pong balls that were, looked like basketballs into a little hoop, and I loved it. Okay, so pretty much I'm a Mountain Dew person. I like the regular stuff. I like the uh, Orange Kickstart, that's my favorite, and then also Baja Blast from Taco Bell. So, thank you Taco Bell for creating Baja Blast. Um, I don't know if it's like little known about me, but I am a rapper. In fact, if I could actually succeed as a rapper, I probably would have chosen that as a career, but I don't think I could. But in junior high, my friend Nate and I definitely had a rap group and we recorded some things that were pretty amazing. You've probably never heard of any of them and you never will. So there's me, uh, that should be obvious. And then also my wife, Andrea, who we've been married 18 years and our kids, Ellie, who is 14, Wesley, who's 13 and Abby, who is 11. Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. I want to welcome you here in the West Auditorium and the East Auditorium, as well as those of you worshiping with us online. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bible or your Bible app to Luke chapter 8. And so it's one of my favorite teachings of Jesus. We're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but before we do that, I have a question for you. Have you ever been stuck? I mean, like physically stuck, but not in a scary way, more in like a comical way. Have you ever been stuck? Okay. So when our youngest daughter, Abby, was four years old, uh, she was in preschool on Monday mornings, and on Mondays I had the day off, and so I would always pick her up from preschool, and we would go wherever she wanted. I think there's a picture of her that we have today. Sometimes we would go to Starbucks. Uh, yeah, she's cute. Let's just admire that. And then uh, so we would go to Starbucks. Sometimes we would go to lunch. It was just her choice. And so this particular day, I had a pretty strong feeling of where we were going because on the way to school, she noticed Burger King and she noticed the play place. And so I thought, yeah, we're gonna end up there. And sure enough, we did. And so I pick her for preschool, we go to Burger King, we order our meal and we sit down in the play place area for lunch. And the first thing out of her mouth is, daddy, can I go play? To which I said, no, because this is not my first dad rodeo. And I know that if she's gone in the play place, I might not get her back to eat the kid's meal that I just purchased. And so she ate the obligatory amount of bites to earn the right to go play, which seems a little weird, but we let her go play, I let her go play, and I finished my lunch, threw our trash away, making sure to protect the kids' meal toy, and then two things occurred to me. First of all, it occurred to me that I had not seen Abby come out of the play structure at any point, and it also occurred to me that there is nobody in this play area. I mean, nobody. And so I walk over to the play area because I'm a little concerned, and I say, hey, Abby, are you okay? And all I hear back is, I'm stuck. I said, well, what do you mean you're stuck? And she goes, I'm stuck. And I'm looking at this play structure built for the average six-year-old. I'm thinking about myself and I'm like, well, that's not happening. And so <laughs> I just sat back down. I was like, hey, you're gonna have to figure this one out. I'll see you when you can make it down. 
No, I didn't do that. That would be a jerk move. And so I started looking at the play structure, and I'm like, I got to go rescue my daughter. And so all I see are these little triangle kind of platforms. You've probably seen them before. And so I start wiggling my way from one to the other. I finally get to the top. I'm crawling across this plastic tube. About halfway through the tube, I wonder what the weight limit is on the tube. <laughs> Fortunately, it was over-engineered. And then I crawl across this netted bridge to finally get to the top to discover that I'm stuck. Actually, just means I just don't know where to go next. And so I filtered out all the things that my brain suggested that I might say to her, and I finally said, hey, sweetheart, that purple tube over there is a slide. Why don't you go down? Daddy will be down in a minute. Go ahead and go. The only problem was Daddy didn't know if he'd be down in a minute because between Daddy and the slide were these eight columns wrapped in purple foam, and there was about five inches of clearance between them. And so in a moment of desperation, I prayed this prayer, God, please don't let me get stuck. I took a step back and I flung myself as far and fast as I could through. And I still don't know what happened. I don't know if the foam was squishier than I thought. I don't know if God parted the columns like the Red Sea, but somehow I ended up on the other side of these columns and I slid down the slide to freedom. And to this day, I keep expecting the security camera video footage of this event to show up on YouTube. So far, so good. Okay, so what's the point of this story? Well, in this series, we're talking about the overflow of our hearts. And as I thought about mine, this story came to mind because one of the things that has the attention of my heart, that has the attention of my mind, is how often, as followers of Jesus, we get stuck in our faith journey. Maybe like Abby, we're, we're journeying along and we reach this point where we just don't know what to do next, and so we kind of just sit there waiting for help. Or maybe like me, we're journeying through the play place of spiritual life and we finally get to this point where there's this obstacle and we just don't know what to do, and so we get stuck. What I do know is that after almost 20 years of being in and around ministry, that I consistently find myself talking with people who feel stuck in their faith. People who have a past with God, but they're just riding that past into the future. And I've certainly felt that way myself at times. But I also know that God has invited us into this really rich, meaningful relationship with him that's supposed to impact every aspect of our lives. So the question really becomes, if we were created for meaningful, life-altering relationship with Jesus, why is it so easy for us to get stuck in our faith journey? And that brings me to Luke chapter 8, uh, verse 5 today. As we enter verse 5, we see that Jesus is talking to a crowd of people, and he is telling this story. He decides to use a parable, which is basically an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. And so Jesus tells a story about a farmer. This is what Jesus says. He says in verse five, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And as I think about Jesus teaching this, I think about the disciples. The disciples were kind of on a world tour with Jesus at this point. They regularly heard him teach, sometimes very directly, sometimes through stories like this. But this one must have thrown them a little bit because they asked Jesus, what does this story mean? And Jesus tells them exactly what it means. In verse 11, this is what Jesus said. He says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, 
but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. And so I want to take a closer look at this story. Jesus says the seed here, it represents the word of God. And he's talking about a double meaning here. He's talking about, yes, the the written word of God, but he's also talking about himself, the living word of God. He says, this is how people are going to respond to me. This is how people are going to respond to truth. And one of four things happens. Jesus said, first of all, there's this path soil. It's really hard. Nothing can grow in it. I don't know if you can see this. Um, This is actually from Pastor BJ's yard, about four feet down is my understanding. It's basically uh, disgusting, and it kind of looks like ground beef from Taco Bell. I would not eat it if I were you, um, so don't come up here afterwards. But uh, Jesus said, the seed fell on this soil, and it was hard, and it got trampled on, and birds came down and ate it and took it away. And he's talking here about people who have such a hard heart that when they hear the word of God, that Satan comes and snatches away even the potential for growth in their lives. So Jesus talks about a second soil. He talks about the rocky soil. And he says the farmer puts the seed in the rocky soil and the plants begin to come up, but they have no root, and so they quickly fade. And he says in this moment, this is, this is about those who hear the word of God, but they have virtually no root in their life, and so they quickly wither and fade in their faith. Jesus said there's a third soil, and I think this is one we need to pay close attention to. Jesus says the farmer casts a seed on this soil and a plant begins to grow. But alongside that plant also grow some weeds. And these weeds represent worries and they also represent the riches and pleasures of life. And eventually they get so big that they choke out this plant and it can't mature. And Jesus says there's a fourth soil. It's a good soil. The farmer puts the seed in the soil and the plant begins to grow and it grows to maturity. Now, like many of you, I've heard this story before, and it's always kind of made me sad, just like, hey, this is what happens, and there's not really anything we can do about it. But as I look at verse 15, I see something different. Let me read that to you again. It says, but the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Hear, retain, and persevere. Those are action words. Those are choice words. Those, those indicate that we have a choice. We have a choice to make sure that, that, the, that our hearts are not so hard that when we hear the word that Satan comes and takes away faith from our lives or that our faith is not so shallow that we're easily distracted by difficulty or that we're not trying to grow but alongside that grow the riches and the pleasures of life and they snuff out our faith. And so the question becomes, how do we make sure that the soil of our lives is good and ready to produce? How do we do that? And so coming back to the overflow of my heart, as I thought about that, I realized that I spent a lot of years of my life trying to keep the soil of my life good. And as I've talked with many of you, as I've talked with other Christians, I, I hear the same story. I want to keep the soil of my life good. But as I've talked with you, I've, I've heard these same ideas over and over and over again about commitments that you've made, commitments that I've made to keep the soil of my life good. And so I want to talk about those commitments today. And I realize that uh, maybe you're here today and you do feel stuck. You know exactly what that means because that's what you're living right now. And my hope is that these commitments will be an encouragement to, to you to help you move along the path of faith. Maybe you're here today, maybe you're joining us online, and this is all brand new to you, and you have no idea what this is all about. 
And I just wanna encourage you, as you listen to these commitments, think about how you might begin to live them out in your life and, and just kind of see what happens. But for many of us here today, we've, we've been doing this for a long time, and I just wanna encourage us to keep making these commitments in our lives. Because like many of you, I find that when I feel like I'm doing good in my relationship with God, often that's the beginning of me getting stuck in my faith because I become complacent. So for those of us who've been making this commitment for a long time, let's keep doing that, but let's also think today about how these commitments could help someone else. So let's get down to it. The first commitment is this. I think one of the, the most important commitments that we can make to keep the soil of our lives good is the commitment to live the Bible. And I know you're like, whoa, I came to church and you said live the Bible, that's amazing, I didn't see that coming. No, of course, we, we know this. This is not new information to us. We know that we're supposed to read the Bible. We know that we're supposed to know the Bible. But there's a big difference between knowing and doing. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not suggesting that you don't need to read your Bible. Please do not tweet that or put that on Facebook later. I do not approve that message. <laughs> However, I'm very aware that if we want to keep the soil of our lives good, that we have, this, have to regularly make this commitment to live the Bible. And so as I was thinking about that, I came across a quote Honestly, that troubled me a little bit at first. I, I really didn't like it. But the more that I thought about it, the more I thought it's true. And so I want to share this with you. It's a quote from Pastor Andy Stanley, and he says this. People are far more interested in what works than what's true. He's talking to pastors here, and he says, I hate to burst your bubble, but virtually nobody in your church is on a truth quest. Now, I believe that we are here to learn truth, but I also believe that one of the reasons I come to church, one of the reasons I'm sure many of us come to church is because we wanna know who God is, we wanna know who we are, we wanna know what this, what this looks like to live it out in real life. You see, I believe that the Bible is true, but I also believe that it works. I believe that the wisdom in it has some serious implications for our lives that impacts every aspect of who we are and everything that we do. And one of the reasons that I suspect this is um, a few years ago, I was uh, reading a book on junior high brain development. I was a junior high pastor at the time. And I know you're like, wow, how do I get a copy of that book? I mean, it sounds <laughs> riveting. Uh, but uh, it talked about the four things that have to happen in the mind of a junior higher. And I think if we're honest, really our minds too, for us to learn something. And this is my gross oversimplification of what the book said. It says, for us to learn, we have to hear, we have to value, we have to try, and then we have to adopt. Hear, value, try, and adopt. And so let's take math homework, for example, because like many of you, I am now a part-time tutor in my home and I have the privilege of working with my son on a regular basis on his pre-algebra homework. And uh, so I just thought, you know, hey, let's talk about that. So as I've watched him uh, learn his pre-algebra, I've watched this process take place. He has to hear his pre-algebra. He has to listen to his teacher. He has to read his book. Then he has to value it. In this case, it's for a grade and that grade determines whether he gets to play video games on the weekend, so it's very important to him. And then he has to try it. He has to begin to do what the teacher says to see if it works, and then he has to adopt it. It becomes a part of who he is. And I believe the same thing is true when it comes to the Bible. We have to hear the Bible. We have to read it. We have to study it. We have to come to church and, and listen to it be preached. Then we have to value it. We have to decide, is God's word what it says it is? And if that's true, then we have to begin to try it. We have to obey it. We have to live it out in our lives, and eventually it becomes a part of who we are. I do have, and so that leads me to, I think ultimately, we just need to remind ourselves that we need to commit ourselves, if we want good soil in our lives, to, to live the Bible on a regular basis. 
But it's not something we commit to once. It's something that we need to commit to over and over and over again. And I guess one final note on this idea. Um, I often talk with people and I hear them say, yeah, I just don't really understand the Bible. I don't get it. It's, it's confusing. And I think what they're really saying is there are parts of the Bible that are confusing and difficult. And I just wanna encourage us today that we should never allow what we don't understand to keep us from living out what we do understand. Let me say that again. We should never allow when it comes to the Bible, what we don't understand to keep us from living out what we do understand. And so our first commitment is to live the Bible. The second commitment I wanna talk about today that I think can help us keep the soil of our lives good is what I wanna call training ourselves to be godly. And you know, when I listen to people talk about their faith story, I hear this come up over and over again. And what I mean by this is just a commitment to really dig into our relationship with Jesus, to spend time in scripture, to spend time in prayer, to, to practice spiritual discipline, but to connect ourselves to God in a personal way. And as I listen to people's stories, consistently I hear what moved them from nominal faith to a deep and rich faith is this step. And I love the way the Apostle Paul talks about this to his protege, Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And as I think about my own story, the times when I take this commitment seriously are the times I have the deepest and richest relationship with God. And I think that's because when we do this, three things happen. First of all, it builds our foundation for faith. It takes faith from something that somebody else told us to something that, that we understand on our own. The second thing that's ha that happens in this space is that it really helps us tune our hearts to the heart of God. It helps us connect in an intimate way with God. But the other thing that it does, I think it trains us, it prepares us, it equips us to grow in other ways in our faith. Maybe another way of saying that is it's kind of the spiritual equivalent of doing burpees. And if you don't know what a burpee is, I'm not gonna demonstrate right now. You can ask somebody else some other time. I, I don't wanna embarrass myself, nor do I want that image in your mind. But what I do know <laughs> is that just as physical conditioning strengthens, strengthens our physical bodies, spiritual conditioning, wow, let me try that again. Spiritual conditioning strengthens our relationship with God. And so I think this is a commitment that we each need to make and we need to continue to make in our lives. And there are so many tools out there today to help us with that. Right now, media and the Bible app are two of my favorites, and you can learn more about those on our website. But as I think about this commitment, I just wanna give a special note to this because I do think this is incredibly important, but if it's been a while since you've made this commitment or you've, you've not taken that step before in your life, I wanna just to give you an encouragement to take it a step at a time. Um, a few years ago, I was working out regularly at a gym and I got involved in a weight loss competition. And uh, as a part of that, I won a day with a personal trainer. And so I went to my meeting with the personal trainer. I was so excited to meet him and he was great. He was encouraging and he taught me tons of things that I could do to strengthen uh, and to, to get healthier and all that stuff. And so I was so excited when I got done to drive home and tell my wife about everything that I had learned and, and how I was gonna get healthier and how I was gonna do all these things and it was gonna be better for me. But something happened on the way home. About halfway home, I started to feel like my, my legs were simultaneously concrete and jello. Maybe you've had that feeling before. And as I got out of the car to walk up to the house, I, I couldn't straighten my legs out, so I kind of just walked like this to the house. Maybe you guys have had that experience. But what's sad about that is that to this day, this is several years ago, I have never done any of those exercises. Were they bad exercises? No, they were great. 
Was the trainer some sort of like evil person trying to derail me? No, not at all. He was a great guy with a great desire. But I was so sore, I just did not want to do them anymore. And I think the same thing is true in our spiritual journey. When we're trying to get this rhythm of our life, of training ourselves to be godly, spending time with God, we often try to go so hard to the paint because we want to get healthy. We, we want to grow in our relationship with Jesus that we end up being spiritually sore. And so if it's been a while since you've made this commitment and today's that day or you've, if you've not done this before and you're going to step into that, we'd encourage you to do that, but please take it a step at a time. At the same time, if you're, if you're still on those first couple steps and it's been a number of years, maybe today is the, the day to really recommit yourself to that and take that next step into your relationship with Jesus. And I just want you to know, we would love to help you do that. I would love to help you do that. Our staff would love to help you do that. And so if that's a step you wanna take today or, or another step you wanna take today, please stop by the Welcome Center on the way out today. For those of you here online, please talk with your, your host and let them know you'd like to grow in that way. Shoot me an email, send me a phone call, stop by Pastor Brian's house on your way home today. He would love to help you with that as well. <laughs> so that brings me to the third commitment that we need to make, and that's the commitment to make ministry personal. Whether that's going on a mission trip or serving in the life of our church or serving in our community or sharing your faith with somebody, this is an incredibly important step and it radically changed my relationship with God. When I was a junior in college, I started serving uh, as a sixth grade boys small group leader. And I learned a few things through that process. First of all, I learned that you better know what you're doing when you are in a group of sixth grade boys because they're kind of like sharks and they can smell blood in the water. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're gonna get destroyed. The other thing I learned is that as I began to care about their spiritual development, God caused me to grow in ways I didn't expect. And I think Jesus understood this too. One of my favorite stories of Jesus is uh, another time he's teaching. This time there's, there's more than 5,000 people there. It's late in the day and they're starting to get hungry. And the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, um, the church people are getting kind of hangry and we should probably do something about that. And Jesus goes, okay, you guys feed them. And they're like, what? Um, all, Jesus, all we have is these five loaves and these two fish. It's kind of like a happy meal and there's 5,000 people. And Jesus goes, okay, give me the food. And Jesus looks up to heaven and he starts breaking it and he gives it to them and he sends them out. And somehow, not only is there enough food to feed everybody, but there's more food left over than they started with. Now that we have three teenagers in our house, I've been trying this strategy with our meal plan as well. It doesn't work, um, but I tried it. I'm just kidding. But what I do know is that uh, Jesus asked his disciples to do something they were not prepared for. And when they stepped into that, amazing things happened. So again, if that's something that you wanna learn more about, you wanna do that, we'd love to help you with that. And that brings me to one more commitment I think that we can each make, and that's the commitment to invest in relationship. Simply put, I have never heard a faith story that doesn't have a relational component to it. And I know it's true for my life. I think about my life, I think about my parents and my youth pastor and my youth volunteers and people I've been in small group with and people I've served with and, and people that I've mentored and people who've mentored me and how much that's mattered to me. But I also know that it's not just me because I hear your stories. I hear the stories about the neighbor who invited you to church. I hear the story about the friend who noticed what was going on in your life and did something about it. I hear the story about the coworker who for, year, coworker who for years showed you God's grace and love and compassion. I hear the story about the men's small group who's walking with this guy through a significant struggle in his journey or the couple's small group who's walking with this couple through a diagnosis 
and a care plan. And the stories go on. But I also know that the opposite is true because I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody walk away from spiritual community only a few months down the road to find themselves stuck and really confused about what to do next in their faith. And I get it. Because let's be honest, spiritual community is difficult because we are difficult. We love the hallmark stories, but the day-to-day, week-to-week of relationship is challenging. But it's also worth it. It's worth it when life is good, and it's worth it when life is difficult. You know, I recently read that the two things that determine how we respond to crisis in our life are, first of all, our worldview, and secondly, who is around us as we're walking through that crisis. In other words, when there's a death or a divorce or, or a lost job or, or whatever crisis we walk through, what determines how we respond to that crisis is the way that we see the world, how we see God, how we see ourselves, how everything relates, but also who is with us as we walk through that. And I'm so grateful in my life that as I've experienced crisis that I've had people who've reminded me of God's grace and his truth and his love and the hope that I have in him. And I love watching that happen in our congregation as well. And so that brings me back to Luke chapter eight and the story of the different soils. You see, I believe these four commitments we talked about today are incredibly important. They've been important in my life and I know they've been important in the lives of others, but I think they can be summed up in one simple idea, and that's this. Growth requires participation. We have to do something. If we don't, we shouldn't be surprised that the soil of our lives is so hard that evil comes and snatches our faith away, or that our roots are so shallow that when our faith gets challenged, we wither, or that we're trying so hard to follow Jesus, but we allow the worries and the riches and the pleasures of life to come and snuff that out. See, growth requires participation. Jesus said, the seed is the same. It's how we respond to it that changes things. And we know that. We know that if we participate in eating healthy and regularly going to the gym and getting adequate rest, we will grow to be healthy. We know that if we participate in eating donuts and sitting on the couch and watching screens, we will grow in other ways. (laughs) So that leads me to one final thought. You see, I believe that growth is something that we are wired to desire. We want to be strong. We want to be healthy. We want to be deep and rich in our faith. But I also think that the enemy of growth is someday. Let me say that again. I believe the enemy of growth is someday. Someday I'm going to do something about that. Someday I'm going to change. Someday I'm going to really pursue this. Someday I'm going to take these commitments that we've talked about today seriously. And so as I get back to the overflow of my heart, my greatest concern today and giving this message is that we would hear this and go, yeah, I know that, and yeah, I want to do that, and then we would, you know, go home or or shut the TV off or, or whatever and just go back to life as it was. And I think that would be a mistake because faith isn't a commitment that we make once, it's a commitment that we make over and over and over again. So I was talking to my wife about this, and she said something I just thought was awesome, and so I want to share it with you. She said, maturity is the journey, not the destination. It's the understanding that we must always be moving toward Christ-likeness. Maturity is the journey, not the destination. And so if that's true, let me ask you this question. Why can't today be someday? Why can't today be the day that we hear and we value and we try and we respond? And so we're going to end the sermon today the way that we've ended every sermon throughout this series. 
Uh, we're gonna take time to pray and to reflect on this and to consider what this might mean for our lives. And I know that nothing that I've said today is rocket science. It's stuff that we know we should do. But again, knowing and doing are two very different things. And I love the way that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote about this. James says in James 1.22, he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do not merely listen and lie to yourself about how you're doing. Do what it says. So today we're gonna take a minute to pray this prompt. God, I want today to be someday. And I don't know what that means for you. I do know, by the way, what it means for me as I've prepared for this sermon. But I have a suspicion you may also know what it means for you. So both here in our rooms and also at home, I'm gonna give you a minute to pray on this prompt. God, I want today to be someday. And then I will close this in prayer. And as you pray that prompt, if you wanna pull out your phone or a piece of paper, jot down a note, set up a reminder in your phone to think about this later, or, or just really to remember this each day this week, I, am, I welcome that. But I wanna invite you now to take some moments on your own to pray this prayer. God, I want today to be someday. And then I will close this in prayer. Let's pray. God, we want the soil of our lives to be good. Lord, we want to be ready for you to bring growth and maturity in our lives. Lord, realizing that that's not a one and done thing. It's an ongoing thing that you've called us to. And Lord, so whatever you've brought to our hearts and our minds today, God, help us to respond to that. Lord, to, to commit to that, to move forward in that, God, to deepen our relationship with you. And Lord, to, to come to a place where, Lord, we orient ourselves around you to be this good soil that you've called us to be. Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us. God, we know that you care deeply for each of us. Lord, it's our desire to, to live in response to that, to be who you've called us to be. And so Lord, we do that today. We do that in the days ahead in the name of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, we're gonna continue to worship now uh, by singing this song, basically saying, God, I wanna be who you want me to be. I want to do what you've called me to do. And so I want to invite you here in the West Auditorium and the East Auditorium to stand, put your masks on. We're going to sing together. For those of you at home or wherever you are online, I invite you to take a posture of worship as we sing together, proclaiming, God, I want to be who you want me to be. I want the soil of my life to be good and ready for growth and ready for maturity. And with that in mind, let's worship together.
set me on fire Take all I have in these hands and multiply God, all that I am and find my heart on the altar again Set me on fire, set me on fire Here I am, God Arms wide open Pouring out my life Gracefully broken My heart stands In awe of your name Your mighty love stands Strong to the end you your purpose for me, you won't forsake me, you will be with me, here I am, God, arms wide open, here I am, pouring out my life, gracefully broken. Gracefully broken